0: Good morning. For those of you that uh, don't know me, I'm Bruce Strugsma, pastor of community and spiritual formation here at Wayzata Free. On the screen behind me is a QR code. I would encourage you, if you are new or visiting, to scan that QR code with your smartphone uh, so you can get connected with us. If you're a regular attender, you can also access the weekly and some other information through that, so I'd encourage you to take advantage of that. In just a second, behind me, you'll also see some pictures that we took yesterday. Uh, We did an event here at the church called Walk Through the Bible. There we have some Samsons uh, flexing for us. Uh, Sam Johnson, ask him why he's a hot tamale. He'll be able to tell you that. Uh, But we had a great time walking through the Old Testament. Uh, The instructor, Brian, took us through all the way from Genesis, all the way through the end of the story, tied a lot of it together. We were really glad to do it. We really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it personally because I think he did a nice job of showing the bigger picture, the grand story that ties all of Scripture together. Sometimes I think we're tempted to pull bits and pieces out of God's word. There's this story from the Bible, and there's that story, and there's this book, and there's that book, and we sometimes miss the bigger picture that ties it all together, God's grand story, as they called it, and as I'm going to now steal shamelessly. God's grand story, and I hope to do a little bit of that today, this morning with you. We're going to look at a passage in Acts 21, and I hope that by looking through it, we can see a little bit more of that story and how it connects to other passages in Scripture and how Paul and and the Israelites and the people going through that story in Acts also saw themselves as part of a larger picture and a larger story. Before we do that, I do want to share a, uh, uh, an example or an, another story. Um, some of you know the name Frank William Abagnale Jr. Uh, if you know him, you know his story. I heard his story first when I was in middle school or high school. Uh, for those that don't know, you might remember the movie made about him called Catch Me If You Can. Uh, where, the, where Leonardo DiCaprio played Frank William Abagnale Jr. At 16 years old, he ran away from his family um, due to a situation going on in his his family life. He ran away. And, and in struggling to survive, he realized that if he lied about who he was and his age, people took him more seriously. Eventually, he posed as a Pan Am pilot, flew all over the world cashing fraudulent checks. When that got a little too sketchy for him, he posed as a pediatrician, worked in a hospital, um, never went to medical school, didn't operate on any patients, thankfully. Uh, when that got a little too complicated, he then went and passed the bar exam in Louisiana and served the attorney general there, and was eventually arrested at like the age of 24. So, um, you know, if you're 24 and you haven't been a doctor, a pilot, and a lawyer, what's going on? Um, so... <laughs> So, but what's interesting about his story is when he gets to the end of his story, if you ever hear him speak, he doesn't celebrate what he did. In fact, he says the opposite. He goes, if I was truly a genius, like some people say, I wouldn't have had to lie to survive. And he actually talks, and one of the things the movie gets very accurate is the loneliness of living that lie and the burden of living that lie. Because when we live a lie long enough, eventually the burden of not being consistent with who we are and who we are called to be wears on us and weighs us down. And that's really the point of his story. And as we look at the story today, we're going to see the exact opposite. We're going to see Paul walking through consistently who God called him to be, what he believes, and living it out. And at some level, I would call that theology. Yes, theology is the study of God, and we think of it in academic terms. We think of people who have advanced degrees in that, but that's not just what theology is. It's not simply an academic pursuit. It's the act of living out who God has called us to be and learning about God so that we can put it into practice what he has told us to do. It's moving it from here to here is a big part of theology, and that consistency is important because if we can talk the talk, but we cannot walk the walk, we will constantly feel that burden of inconsistency. And that's and that's what I think is important because we're going to look today at the story of Paul and we're going to see how he took what the, what the Holy Spirit had unveiled to him about bringing people to know Christ and we're going to see how he chose to live that out in a way that was consistent. And so for the last few weeks, we've been journeying with Paul. For those that have been around as we've been going through Acts, the last couple of weeks especially, he's had his eyes set towards Jerusalem. He felt compelled by the Spirit in Acts 20, to head towards Jerusalem. And in Acts 20, 23, the next verse, he states that he knows he's going to face hardship and potentially prison. And yet he sets his eyes towards Jerusalem. And as we've been journeying with him, we've seen that that picture of what he's heading into continues to become more and more clear to where Peter and Kevin up here last week shared about Agabus prophesying that this person, Paul, when he gets to Jerusalem will be arrested and bound. And so he knows what he's heading into, and so we're going to see how he lives that out in a way that's that's consistent. And I think one way that we can see that is by understanding that Acts ties in with the other books of the Bible in the New Testament especially. Paul isn't living in a vacuum. He's written a lot of books that we later on will name for the people he wrote them to. His letter to the Corinthians, his letter to the Romans, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the people in Ephesus, Galatia, so on. Timothy, Titus, to people, Philemon. He's written all of those, not in a vacuum, but in the story that's going on in Acts. And by the time he enters Jerusalem in our story today, he's written some of those, but not all of them. Some later will be written from prison. He'll talk about that. One of those that he's probably already written is 1 Corinthians. So he's already written, probably in Ephesus, just a couple chapters ago, the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so when we look at 1 Corinthians, we can get an idea of Paul's thought process, and then we'll see how he lives it out. And so I want to read first this morning from 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. Paul says this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law." To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. And here I want us to hear this. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. And so now we're going to get to see Paul live this out. He's already written it. He's already talked the talk. Hopefully now we'll get a chance to see, can he walk the walk? And what does it mean to be all things to all people that by all possible means he might save some? And I would encourage you to think that through as we continue in Acts and we see how Paul's story ends in Acts and in other books of the, of the New Testament, we see how his story ends And we'll continue to see, I would argue, him continue to live that out, even though he doesn't know how it ends. He doesn't know whether his, I might save some, was successful or not. And yet he continues to live it out. And I think one way we can see it in this specific passage we're going to look at is the difference that Paul sees between a want and a need. And I think as our society, we struggle with that, right? I want you to want me, as one great theologian once said. (laughs) I need a new iPhone. I need a vacation. I need, I need, I need. We have an incorrect view sometimes of what's the difference between a want and a need. And it's easy to look at other people and see that, and yet I need to look at myself and say, boy, I really need a new car because the one that gets me here works just fine, but it still has a tape deck, and I would really like an auxiliary port to plug in my phone. I need, I need. And we confuse the two. So this morning, I want to compare wants and needs in our perspective and see how Paul sees them as a little different than maybe we do. Number one, we want to receive recognition but we need to see what God is doing. We want to receive recognition. We all do. We love to be celebrated. We love to be held up. We love, like Ephesus and Athens and Berea. Seeing God move, seeing these, it'd be tempting to walk in and go, okay, I've just landed at the airport here in Jerusalem. Where, where's my entourage? Where are my people? Come, let me tell you how big of a deal I am. And let's read what actually happens. Acts 21, starting in verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they praised God. We want recognition. It would be tempting if I was Paul to walk in and go, let me tell you how great I am. I'm a great theologian. I know my Bible better than any of you. God has done incredible miracles through me to the point where people touching handkerchiefs are being healed. Demons are being cast out. This wouldn't have happened without me, people. Right? It'd be tempting, but that's not what he does. He shows up with his people. This book is written by Luke, who's traveling with him, so it is written from his perspective. So when he says "we," he means Paul and the rest. Paul didn't walk in and say, "Okay, entourage, you guys stay behind me." And when he went to see James, he didn't say, "You guys stay here." He said, "We're going to go see James." And even look at James. James is another person who would, who would have a lot of reason to think themselves a really significant person. I'm the brother of Jesus. Not many people can claim that. I'm the leader of the Jerusalem church. God's been doing some pretty incredible stuff here too. And that's not what we see. We see them reporting on what God had done and we see them praising God. And Paul, when he goes and meets with James, it's not just Paul and James having a power lunch. It's the entire team that's been traveling with Paul and it's the entire elders that have been working with James. And we see this community as an integral part of what Paul sees about how Paul lives his life and how the Jerusalem church and the leaders live their life because community is significant. We need to be in authentic relationship with each other. That's how we keep our need for recognition a little lower and celebrate what God is doing. We need that authentic community. If you're not in authentic community, I would encourage you after the service to head over to the fellowship hall. We're gonna have a small group fair. That would be a spot where you could walk in and say, I need some people in my life to journey through life. I would encourage you, and if you have kids, there's going to be a bunch of ring pops in the fellowship hall. I would encourage you to pop in to the fellowship hall and pop in to a small group. (laughs) Authentic community is significant. The mission of the church is not about Paul. The mission of the church is not about James. The mission of the church is about Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that as well. The mission of the church is not about Bruce and what Bruce wants. The mission of the church is not about a successful small group ministry or a successful worship ministry or a successful youth ministry. The mission of the church is about bringing people who don't know Jesus Christ to know him. That's God's mission. My need for recognition is secondary to what God is all about. There are times it is important to recognize the work of those around us, but it's always secondary to what God is doing. Second, We want to hold on to our personal preferences, but we need to hold on to what's primary. Once Paul and once we set aside our personal need for recognition, it's easy to take the next step and realize there are some other preferences that maybe I need to set down for the sake of the larger mission. Sometimes we forget where we are and our standards are wrong. How many of you have been camping maybe in the boundary waters and you're cooking a hot dog over the fire and it falls on the ground? Now, if I was at home and a hot dog falls on the ground, will I eat it? Probably, but I'm going to clean it first. If I'm in the boundary waters, am I going to eat it? Absolutely, and I'm going to call that dirt seasoning, and I'm going to go ahead and do it. (laughs) When I had an opportunity to go sailing with my father-in-law in the Atlantic, I'm a coffee snob. I like quality coffee. I like good coffee. I like to appreciate the aroma The different blends, the various roasts, that's significant to me. But when I was in the Atlantic Ocean and the only option was Folgers crystals, amen. (laughs) I took the fol because my standards are different. My personal preference is for hot dogs that haven't fallen on the ground and for coffee that was batch roasted. That's my personal preference. But there are times where it's appropriate to set our personal preference aside. And we're going to see Paul do that here. Then they said to Paul, Acts 20, starting again in verse 20, or Acts 21, starting in verse 20, they they said to Paul, you see, brother, this is James speaking, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law." As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And let me clarify a little bit. You'll notice in this passage that James' concern is not what Paul is or isn't teaching. That's settled. He ends it at the end. Hey, we've talked about what the Gentiles are required of. We settled that in Acts 15. This isn't bringing that argument back up. This is all about immature believers, this is all about personal preference. New believers in the Jerusalem church who grew up as Jews, who grew up with the customs and traditions of Judaism are coming to faith and as new believers they are struggling with what is primary and what is secondary. They are struggling with their preference. And, and in the same way, Paul never told the Jews in the Gentile communities to leave the Jewish traditions and pass behind. He said don't require it of the Gentile believers. So this is the issue that's facing them. Paul had been teaching and writing about the dangers of seeing the law, the Old Testament, as primary, as a means to salvation, but nowhere does he condemn Jews from continuing to follow the traditions of their past. And so we're going to see, he's going to take that passage from 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jew, I become a Jew to win the Jews. And we're going to see him put that into practice. He's going to pursue this ritual cleansing. Now, these other guys, they're going through a 40-day Nazarite vow. He's not doing that. He's doing what is traditional and customary for a Jewish person who's been traveling in a Gentile world to come in and take seven days, shave his head, and do a purification before entering into communal worship. Paul was more than willing to participate in this symbolic act of Jewish piety if that would help to justify, justify his Gentile mission in the eyes of Jewish Christians. What he is doing is he's saying, look, I'm going to go through this because I think it will both help your mission in Jerusalem and my mission in the Gentile world to show that we are not in opposition to each other. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm going to set my personal preference aside because my personal freedom is not worth somebody else's bondage to sin. So he's going to willingly step back under the law to win those under the law. And I want to ask us, in a country that blesses us with immense freedom, what freedoms are we willing to set aside for the sake of somebody else? For the sake of somebody who doesn't know the gospel? In my last sermon, if you were here, I talked about the idea that when we share the gospel, sometimes people reject it and we assume that they're rejecting Christ when in reality they're maybe rejecting me and my methods. What am I willing to set aside because somebody else might come to know Christ? I have the freedom to do this or that or this or that, but because that might be a stumbling block to somebody else, I will willingly set that down because that's not my goal. How do we keep Christ primary? And I would encourage you to consider what I call the great question. As we read the New Testament, we hear the great commission, right? Go into all the world, baptizing, make disciples, all nations. We know that passage, right? Go therefore. We know the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How do we judge what is primary? I would encourage you to consider the great question, Matthew 16, 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? That to me is the great question. Who is Jesus? Who do we believe Jesus is, and how are we communicating that to other people? That is what is primary. Our Dress, our style of worship, uh, what type of whatever we do is secondary to helping people encounter the living Christ. What is primary to us? Who is Christ? That is what is primary. We belong to the Evangelical Free Church. The Free Church for a long time has believed that we major on the majors and minor on the minors, meaning those things that are secondary, we are quick to set down. But it doesn't just apply to Doctrine. It applies to our preferences as well. If I major on what is major and minor on what is minor, what preferences and minor freedoms am I willing to set down? Third, we want to see our views confirmed, but we need to see God's truth. When I was in high school, I was in a car accident. I was in several, but we're only going to talk about one of them this morning. (laughs) And we're going to talk about one of them that was my fault. Uh, So I was a, a senior in high school. My friend Chris was involved in a triathlon. I was his supporting crew member, which means I was driving my mom's minivan with his spare bike and a cooler and a couple of friends in it. And anybody, I grew up in Brainerd, anybody who knows the Brainerd area, 371 north of Brainerd and the Paul Bunyan Trail run right next to each other. So you have a bunch of high school kids driving their parents' minivans going up 371, pulling off randomly to hand a banana or a bottle of water off to the biker who keeps going, then pulling back out into traffic and accelerating rapidly to the next pull-off spot. It was also senior skip day. I think you can see where this ended. (laughs) I was so focused on handing stuff off, I didn't see the car in front of me slam on its brakes to make a turn. I rear-ended him, hit him hard enough, it cracked my transmission in half. Transmission fluid, which is red, poured out all over the ground. My friend, who was not wearing her seatbelt, went into the windshield, went to the hospital, she's fine now. But it was a scary moment, and all of these high school kids are driving by, seeing an ambulance with a body being loaded into it and red fluid on the ground. By the time I get done dealing with the accident and helping my friend get his stuff back to the school, I walk into the school to return the supplies and to pick up any missed homework that I missed on Senior Skip Day. And I see these people crying. And I can't figure out why they're crying until they see me and they go, you're not supposed to be here, you're dead. See, the rumor mill had caught gone faster than me. What had happened is they had seen red fluid on the ground, they had seen a body being loaded into an ambulance, and assumed, therefore, that I died. And that's what's going to happen here to Paul in Acts 21. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, and time out, earlier Luke referred to the Ephesians as Jews from the province of Asia, so we can assume that these are Ephesian Jews, and that, that will come back, so hang on to that thought. Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere. Notice how the rumor has progressed. At first it was he teaches the Jews in the Gentile communities to forsake the Jewish law. Now it's everyone everywhere, against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. There's the assumption. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Our brains like to fill in missing information for us. Sometimes that's an important and necessary thing. Sometimes it gets in our way, and I have an illustration of that. You look at this picture, and I know for some of you it's a little hard to look at, but you see some lines, and you see what appears to be multicolored balls in the lines. I'm telling you now that those balls are the same color. It's the lines in front of them your brain is using to color the rest of the ball. There it is. Your brain filled that in. I guarantee they're the same. And here we're going to watch it flicker back and forth. Go ahead. And now before anybody has a seizure, we'll move on. (laughs) But we want to see our, brain, our, our views confirmed and our brains sometimes fill in missing information. For Paul, they saw him walking with some Ephesian Greeks and the Ephesian Jews who saw him recognized them, knew they were Greeks, saw them in the city. Then they see Paul in the temple, which is appropriate because there were spots in the temple that were closed to Gentiles. And they see Paul in a spot that is closed to Gentiles and they assume that he brought the Greeks in with him. Again, this is why it's significant that we pick up that they're from Ephesia, Ephesus, Ephesia, that's the book. Because they're going to make that assumption, their brain filled in, it wanted to fill in that information. And we have a term for it, it's called confirmation bias. We do it all the time. We read something and we fill in the information. We do it, Paul did it. Before Paul came to know Christ as a savior, he was a persecutor of Jews who read the Old Testament and read in there that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah and therefore they were heretics and therefore they deserved death. And then he encounters Christ. And if you read Galatians 1, you get a little bit of a glimpse into the timeline that after he encounters Christ, he goes into the wilderness for three years. We don't exactly know what he did, but a lot of people think that what he did is he went, I clearly was reading the scriptures and looking for The information I wanted. And I need to go back as a scholar, as a believer now, and reread my scriptures to see what it truly says instead of what I want it to say. And we do that a lot. We read something and we pick out the bits and pieces that feed our view or our perspective. We like to cherry pick Bible verses that substantiate our view on other things. And really we're looking for our preferential view instead of looking for God's truth. We see a Christian leader or a public figure and because he or she ticks the right theological boxes, we start assuming they're right on everything else. Or we start to align with their views on everything else because they check certain boxes that we value. And I think it's interesting that we see the doors on the temple slamming shut in the face of this. This is going to be the last glimpse we get of the temple in Acts. The doors are slamming shut. There's a rejection going on. See, truth belongs to God. It's not mine, it's not Paul's, it's not yours. We are not the gatekeepers of God's truth. All truth is God's truth. It is his We as Christians should be about his truth and not about confirming our own opinions. We should not be afraid of that real truth. We should maybe at times be open to what God could be showing us is what he believes. It is not easy to set down our preferences and wants and our own vision for the future. But if we don't, we risk slamming the doors on the faces of people in the world specifically a world out there that is desperately hungry for real truth, for God's truth? How are we as a church going to keep moving forward if we cling more to our own preferences and personal views instead of pursuing God's truth with the world? And finally, we want to have the easy life But we need to trust God through the challenges. And what exactly is the easy life? Is that the American dream? The 2.5 kids, the white picket fence, the 1.2 cats, which is George Jetson. For those of you old enough to remember the Jetson, or if you're maybe not old enough to remember the Jetsons, like me, you remember the reruns of the Jetsons. George Jetson was the image of the easy life, the future, the ideal future, Sidewalks that move, robots that do the work for, for you, cars that fold up into briefcases so you can carry it into your office. Is that what we should be about? Is that what we as Christians should be pursuing? Is the easy life our goal? I remember hearing Christian author Shane Claiborne speak, and he said something that was really compelling to me, and he said, I hear a lot of Christians talk about how their life was a mess and chaotic and they met Jesus and now it makes sense. And at some level, that's true. Our life maybe lacks purpose and meaning and we find Jesus and we realize where that calling is. He says, but oftentimes the reverse is the same. My life was easy and it made sense and then I met Jesus and now it's a disaster. And I think we see that same concept in Scripture. When I read the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, what I see time and time again is people encountering God and their life falling apart by worldly standards. Not by his standards, but by worldly standards. Abram is told to go to the land I will show you. Moses is called to a wilderness life. David is anointed while serving under a different king. Jesus' lineage includes a Moabite woman and a prostitute. Peter goes from fishing to being a martyr. John the Baptist is beheaded. John the Apostle ends his life in exile on an island. And this passage that we're looking at now is the beginning of the end for Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, thus fulfilling the prophecy that Agabus Gave earlier in the chapter. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. If Paul was seeking the easy life, he should have turned away from Jerusalem in the last chapter. When the Holy Spirit compelled him to go to Jerusalem and he saw that he faced trouble and hardship, if he was pursuing the easy life, he would have turned and walked the other way. He'd have done what Jonah did and gotten in a boat for Tarsus instead of going to Nineveh. It's not the easy life that we're pursuing. It's the godly life. And as Peter and Kevin shared last week from John 10.10, Jesus says this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And oftentimes we fill in, our brain fills in the information. What is the full life? Oh, it's a a life free from financial worry. It's a life free from the stresses of school. But that's not what the full life is. The full life is a life fully pursuing what God has called us to and trusting him through it. And I know that because later on, Jesus is going to come back to it in John 16, 33, and he's going to say this, I have told you these things, addressing his disciples, so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Not maybe, might, possibly. You will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, our goal is not to pursue the easy life. Our goal is to trust God through the challenging circumstances Christ overcame the troubles of the world, not through wealth and prosperity, but by giving up himself on our behalf. So we end back where we started. Paul states, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And again, we have no indication whether or not Paul going through this ritual, whether or not Paul getting arrested had any success in what he hoped it would do. We do know he knew it wouldn't work. He knew he was facing prison. He knew he was facing hardship and arrest. We don't. I think it would be foolish to assume that he thought that maybe this will get me out of that. He did it anyway. So that by all possible means, some might be saved. He's going through a completely secondary ritual on the off chance. That somewhere, someone might come to know Christ. So what about us? Where is our church called to give up ourselves? Where are you as a person called? How can we be all things to all people and use all possible means that we might save some? What personal recognition do we need to give up for the sake of God's glory? What freedoms do we need to set down so that somebody can come to know Christ? What personal ideologies are preventing us from engaging in those who need to hear God's word? And what hardships are we trying to avoid? that God might be calling us into? How are we going to do all that we can to help unveil Jesus Christ? And I think as we end, we're going to go into a time of communion, and I think a communion is a great opportunity to see what that means. Because in taking communion, we're reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf. And we get to, in a small way, engage in what Jesus engaged in. We get to engage in his death and resurrection. And as we go into communion, I would remind you that our communion table here at Wise Free is open to anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. So I'd encourage you to engage with us. And I would like to also highlight just a quick parallel. Because as we just looked at Paul's beginning of his end and Paul's entrance into Jerusalem, notice the parallels between him and Jesus. Both are called to Jerusalem. Both know that when they get there, they will face hardship. Both are challenged by a mob with false charges. Both are arrested based on those false charges. The commanders or principalities in both situations seek expediency and peace over justice and truth. And both face a crowd calling, kill him, get rid of him, crucify him. Paul had no idea what was coming. He didn't know if he was going to live to see the end of the day. And so as we engage in communion, let's remember what our Lord faced on our behalf, knowing full well that he did face death on our behalf to take our sins on him. And as we end, we'll end again in 1 Corinthians, the letter Paul has already written, and we'll take communion together. It says this, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Father God, I thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. And Lord, as we listen to your spirit and consider what we need to set down, as our flesh pushes against your call on our life, Lord, help us to remember your sacrifice. God, help us to not hear our flesh saying, get rid of him and crucify him. God, help us to pursue your truth and your spirit focus on you, what is primary, and set aside all that is secondary and getting in our way. We pray this in your name. Amen.